In my work as a psychologist, one of the things that I find is that when somebody says, oh, like I am a control freak or, oh, I, I need to control the situation, what they're really saying is I'm scared because we we try to exert control when we're afraid. And I think that those baldities that are like, I'm going to become popular by strutting around, by picking on people younger than me, by, or, you know, weaker than me, by projecting a particular part of my personality and only that part of my personality, you know, those, those are people who are afraid. Hey there, welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. We talk health, we talk well-being every Monday and Thursday. If you're new or indeed if you're returning, you're most welcome. And if you're getting any value at all from this series, please like, subscribe and share and leave the podcast a positive rating. It helps to show your support and get the message of what we're doing out into the world. In today's episode, I speak with clinical psychologist and author Daniel Wendler, who as a teenager was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. In this episode, Daniel discusses what Asperger's syndrome is and how it affected his ability to interact socially and make friends while growing up. We learn how Daniel's journey and struggle with social interaction now informs his career as a clinical psychologist. We hear about how he manages imposter syndrome and how he copes with disappointments in life. Expect to learn about the concept of learned helplessness in the context of developing social skills. We ask if there is a link between poor social skills and gaming, and we discover how social skills are like any other skill and can be improved. You are a man with a particularly deep interest in social connection and in friendship uh, because you were diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is a condition on the autism spectrum, but you weren't diagnosed until you were a teenager. Could you tell us, first of all, what exactly Asperger's syndrome is and how did it manifest itself in your life on a day to day basis? And then by extension, how did it influence your social interactions and your relationships? Sure. So Asperger's syndrome, it's, it's actually kind of vintage because uh, you can't get this diagnosis anymore. They, they updated it so that now uh, people that would have been diagnosed with Asperger's are now diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Um, so they sort of lumped everything under that. Um, but, you know, Asperger's, it, it really refers to um, difficulty with uh, social interactions. So the best way that I could think of it is that my brain sort of just wasn't wired to learn social skills in the way that everybody else's brain was. And so other people could just sort of go through life and naturally kind of figure out what they were supposed to do in particular social situations, um, what body language, tone, things like that, what all of that meant. And then for me, I just sort of didn't. Um, and so it was much more difficult for me to engage socially. Um, you know, Asperger's also brought a lot of other traits that are common to people on the autism spectrum, um, such as having uh, sensory sensitivities. So certain things, like certain sensations, um, I experience stronger or uh, less strong than other people. Um, like I can't handle any spice in my food at all, but I will enjoy eating an entire mouthful of mint gum because sort of like the more mintiness, the better. And I don't, I don't know why I'm sort of wired that way, but that's kind of how it, how it works for me. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the combination of these things really, uh, have the effect that growing up, 
Um, I struggled a lot socially. I think that I really, I always wanted to be social. I always wanted to connect with other people. Um, but as I uh, would try to engage, it just sort of wouldn't work. Like I, I have memories of, you know, going up to, you know, people in the cafeteria um, and they would just all stand up, pick up their lunches and move to a different table because the other kids didn't want to spend time with me. Or sometimes it wasn't just kids ignoring me. Sometimes they bullied me. They hit me. They were cruel to me. All the sorts of things that, you know, kids can sometimes do to somebody who's different. Um, but when I was diagnosed, I was able to realize, oh, like it, it's not that I'm I'm bad. It's not that I'm undesirable. It's just that there's these skills that other people expect me to have that I don't have. And so I was able to really work very deliberately at teaching myself those social skills. Like I would get books on body language and etiquette rules and things like that. Um, and I was able to sort of teach myself social skills in the way that you would teach yourself a second language. Um, and that allowed me to access a lot of social success and connection. And then as my life has gone further along, I've been able to realize sort of that, you know, not everybody is going to be like those kids in the cafeteria that will judge you and reject you for being different. And I've been able to find friendships that will, you know, love and accept me even when I don't try so hard to be quote unquote normal. And even when I'm still sort of my weird, awkward self, I found people that are very accepting and affirming of that. And did your perception of self change then once you were diagnosed and you were given uh, an answer really for questions that were probably in your mind up to that point? It, it absolutely did, because I think prior to my diagnosis, I really blamed myself for uh, what had been happening because I, you know, I looked around, I saw that other kids could make friends. I saw that I was the only one that was rejected. And so I thought, well, this must be because of something about me. Like I'm just bad in some way. Um, and then when I realized that it was because of the diagnosis, I realized that, oh, well, it's, it's not my fault. It's not that there's something about my, my character or myself. It's just that because of this condition, I am social in a different way than other people are social. Um, and I don't know how to be social in the way that, you know, everybody expects me to be social. And that's like, again, it's not my fault. And that's something I can learn. You gave a terrific TED talk and I'll pop a link to it in the show notes for this episode in which you detail your journey all the way through from uh, being a child. And at one point you mentioned that you had a strategy. You came up with this strategy, the invisible man strategy. Can you tell us uh, what your motivation for this was and what it involved? Yeah. So the invisible man strategy uh, was something that I used early on in high school because I had just moved to a brand new high school. I didn't know anybody there. Um, I'd also recently been diagnosed with Asperger's. And so I knew that I was different from everybody else. This was very, very frightening to me. But I thought, you know, if I can just keep my head down and not pay, you know, not attract any attention, not engage in any conversation, not raise my hand in class, then I might be able to get through the day without anybody um, bullying me or rejecting me or anything like that. So my invisible man strategy uh, was, was really based around uh, can I just be invisible and try my hardest uh, not to attract any attention? Which is heartbreaking. I think anybody can relate to that. I think who has been bullied. I, I was bullied at one point. I think a, a lot of people would have been and they can relate to being ostracized, certainly. So I can really understand. I can absolutely understand why you'd wanted for the, the ground to have swallowed you up and 
to have just been taken out of that context, that that painful situation that you were in. And then you at one point then in the, the same TED talk, you spoke about being in the hallway during lunchtime, sitting down with your back against the wall. There happened to be another boy in the hall who was doing the exact same thing. And you befriended him at that time. That's true. Like my, my invisible man strategy, I sort of continued that up until the point where I saw that there was somebody else also following the invisible man strategy. And then I sort of, I noticed that there was this other boy who was also awkward, shy, lonely, but probably like me really wanted a friend. And then at that, at that time I was like, okay, I can either continue to be invisible, uh, which is safer, but is going to lead up with me being alone, this other kid being alone, or I can reach out and I can try to be a friend, even though that's really scary. Um, and you know, my, my grandma would always say like, if you want to have a friend, you have to be a friend. And I didn't, you know, I'm at that moment, that was sort of the truth of what was going on. I realized being the invisible man, it's kind of a bummer. I didn't really like it. Um, and if I, you know, even though it was risky to reach out to this boy, if I wanted to, you know, have a friend, I needed to be a friend to him. And so I sat down next to him and I said, hello. And it turned out that he would end up being my best friend of high school. So was that moment then, that seminal moment, a light bulb moment for you? It absolutely was because I think that I had up to that point, I had really seen myself as the only one that struggled with this. Like I sort of felt like everybody else could get all the connection that they wanted. Everybody else knew how to fit in, but I was the only one that was sort of on the outside. And then, it, and then when I saw that boy and I connected with him, I realized that actually a lot of people struggle uh, socially. They struggle with connection. And if I, you know, instead of trying to the popular kids like me, if I looked for other people that were also hungry for connection, I could build a lot of wonderful relationships from that. And that not only was helpful for me, you know, in, in high school and in my own social life, um, but it sort of led to the career that I have now because I realized that so many people, uh, whether you are autistic or, or, you know, neurotypical, I, so many people struggle with these things. So many people have uh, difficulties, at least here in the United States, I think it's like 10% of people in a survey said that they have uh, zero friends at all. These are, these are, you know, American adults. Um, and I realized that like these people could be helped and uh, some of the things that had worked for me could work for other people. And so that's what sort of led me to, uh, you know, become an author and a speaker and a psychologist. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about those cool kids, the ones that uh, would have alienated you and ostracized you in, in school and in college. Uh, you'd said that you, you struggled, obviously, to, to make friends because you wanted people to know the real you. So whenever we think about the archetypal cool kid in school and the jock and that kind of popular person, they're normally popular for the wrong reasons and they are expressing a part of their personality for the wrong reason to appeal to other people just for the sake of getting attention or, or, or filling a void or vacuum in them. How do you view these popular or cool kids as such whenever they are seeking popularity again for those wrong reasons? Yeah, I, I think that really in my work as a psychologist, one of the things that I find is that when somebody says, oh, like I am a control freak or, oh, I, I need to control the situation. What they're really saying is I'm scared um, because we we try to exert control when we're afraid. And I think that those bullies that are that are like, 
I'm going to become popular by strutting around, by picking on people younger than me, by, or, you know, weaker than me, by, uh, you know, projecting a particular part of my personality and only that part of my personality. You know, those, those are people who are afraid. Um, maybe, maybe it's not conscious, um, but I think deep down there, they feel like fragile in their acceptance. They feel if, if people really knew me, would they like me? Or if I ever stopped being good at throwing this football or whatever, would, what do I have left? What is my value? And so they really, uh, sort of project that, um, so that they can maintain that control. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's in some ways sad because the people that don't need that control, the people that sort of know who they are and are willing to find people who accept them as they are. I think those people are the folks that have the pathway to much more fulfillment. And obviously, you know, that's hard in high school. Everybody's kind of figuring themselves out, but as we get into adulthood, some people still sort of clinging to that. I need to control, I need to present a particular image. And I think some people are able to grow out of that. How much of your day-to-day exploration from when you were a child all the way through to now when you're an adult, how much of that day-to-day exploration of your own uh, social interaction and your struggles with social interaction and making friends has informed your um, professional life now as a clinical psychologist? It's it's a significant amount. Um, I think that the the thing that really has influenced it the most was sort of the ability to see social skills not as kind of roadmap for memorization, but as uh, sort of this principles-based approach. Um, because a lot of the social skills guys that are out there, it's like, oh, you know, you meet somebody, you know, you're supposed to shake their hand and make small talk. But, but why are you supposed to do that? They will explain that to you. And without the explanation, it's very hard to learn that. It's very hard to uh, apply that in a situation that might be a little bit different. But if you sort of understand the principle of like what you're doing is kind of behaving in this way that shows friendliness and shows that you know how to kind of abide by social norms, that helps make the other person comfortable. That helps make the other person realize that you're a safe person to engage with deeply then you could take that principle and apply it in all sorts of different ways. And so I think that that sort of idea of finding the principle underneath like the skill or the social rule has really helped me as I work with my clients. Um, Although I will say that as I sort of developed as a psychologist, what I found is that it's, it's more common for somebody to come in saying, I need help working on my social skills. And then as I get to know them, I'm like, your social skills are fine. What you need is help working on your your anxiety and your willingness to be vulnerable. Like you don't need the perfect social skills. You can engage just as you are and people will still like you. I think that that's become more common as I've as I've learned more about how to help people. So my understanding then from what you're saying is then poor social skills then is a symptom of a, of an underlying issue. Is that is that what you're saying? To a certain extent, I I think that it's more so that um Somebody might have social skills that aren't great, um, but they think, but but their social skills are good enough. Um, but they think that all oh, my social skills have to be amazing, and therefore I'm not going to go to that party. I'm not going to go to that social group because my social skills just aren't good enough. And then this sort of becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. The more things that they avoid, the worse their social skills become. And I think oftentimes what I encourage people to do is to say, yeah, you might not be, you know, like a a Hollywood actor. That's the most charismatic person in the world, but that's okay. 
you can still engage even with imperfect social skills. Well, I'm glad you said it because uh, I've spoken before about uh, people's obsession with perfection and how it can be so counterproductive. We're talking about social skills then and uh, social skills by virtue of being a skill can be enhanced like any other skill. What basic things can we do in order to enhance our social skills then on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I, I think that the one of the biggest things that people can do to enhance their social skills is to notice the times when they feel like they their mind is going blank and they have nothing to say um, because this happens frequently um, to, to a lot of people that struggle socially. But the fact is your mind is not actually going blank. Like unless, unless you've just, you know, like, you know, you're, you're narcoleptic and you're falling asleep or something like that. You know, you have thoughts in your mind. What's actually occurring uh, is that whatever thoughts are coming to mind, you're saying, Oh, those aren't good enough. Like, Oh, I could say that, but that's awkward. Oh, I could say that, but that's not interesting. And I think that one of the easiest things to apply is that when your mind is going blank, if, if something comes to mind and it's not harmful, go ahead and say it. Like if, if the thing that you want to say is like, it's going to be offensive in some way, obviously don't do that. But if it's not harmful, if it's not going to hurt anybody, go ahead and try to say it, even if it feels awkward, even if it feels off base. And that I think is one of the, the easiest ways to improve your ability to engage more um, with other people. I think one of the other things that I would recommend is uh, to try to train social skills in the way that you would train any other skill, uh, which is to take one piece of it and and deliberately hold that in your focus as you go and engage in a social situation. So if your goal is, I want to be better about not interrupting, then go, go and have a conversation and just focus on not interrupting during that conversation. Don't worry about anything else. Just focus on building that one skill because it's going, like, if you do that, it's going to improve. Just like if you, you know, go to the kitchen and you focus on, I'm just going to focus on, you know, cracking eggs without getting the shells everywhere. If you just drill that one little component, it will get better and it will make you as a cook as a whole better. Um, The same thing is true of social skills. Like people often think, oh, I'm just not talented. I'm just not charismatic. Like it's, it's, it's either a thing that I have or I don't, but like, no, it's like, it's like anything else in life. Like whether you want to play guitar or be a cook or, you know, learn how to juggle if you, you know, or be social. If you pick one piece, train that one piece and then keep building from there, you will get better at it. Well, I take your advice because the one thing that uh, has always bedeviled me is an inability to keep and maintain eye contact when I'm talking. I'm I'm very animated when I'm talking and I'm looking here, there and yonder and I, I'm conscious of it. So I, I'm going to take your advice. I'm going to try to drill down and just focus on that one aspect of my uh, social engagement so as I can eradicate it once and for all. <laughs> I think that's a good t- uh, that's a good thing to focus on. My, my one tip specifically for eye contact is just try to look at other people about as much as they look at you. So if you notice the other person's looking at you, I'll look back at them and that'll usually match you pretty evenly to where, where people expect of you. Mirror what they're doing. Can we talk about learned helplessness and how it applies to social skills? You gave a great analogy before involving an elephant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So learned helplessness is this psychological principle uh, that uh, has been uh, shown where where people that are in one situation where they are helpless, where they don't have the ability to improve their situation, when you move them to a new situation, um, like where they can make a difference, they still don't do anything because they've, they've learned that they're helpless 
even though that's no longer true. And the best metaphor of this is that when when people like the circus will try to raise an elephant, they'll take a baby elephant, they'll chain it to a tree stump, and then of course the elephant doesn't wander off because it can't, you know, it, it's chained to that tree stump. But then when it becomes a full grown elephant and it could rip up that tree stump stump if it wanted to, it it still stays put where the circus performers want it because it sort of learned the tree stump is immobile. I can't change it, and it doesn't sort of take the time to update what it's capable of. And I think that we as people often do that also. Like we we still engage in the world in the same way that we did when we were a kid or a teenager or the first time that we ever tried something. And we don't realize that like we are, you know, older, we're wiser, we might be able to do something in a different way. Or as we were saying on the social skills, even if we can't do it better right now, we can get better. We can we can train, we can practice. Like that elephant could go to the gym a little bit if it, you know, can't pull that stump out. And um, yeah, anything where you feel like you're not able to do it, if you try to reframe it and say, I can't do that yet, um, that can sometimes encourage you to sort of think through how might I be able to do this thing that for a long time I've just assumed wasn't possible. Daniel, you've written a couple of books as well as being a clinical psychologist. Your books are, are entitled Improve Your Social Skills and then you have another one called Level Up Your Social Life, A Gamer's Guide to Success. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about these? Yeah, so Improve Your Social Skills, this was really sort of like my core encyclopedia of social skills. And what I really wanted to do was to solve the problem that I saw where many of the other social skills guides out there were just these grab bags of tips. Um like it was just like some random, you know, piece of advice of like, oh, like, you know, when you walk through a, a door, like make sure to straighten up your posture so people see you with good posture. And it's like, I mean, that's helpful, I guess, but it's just a lot of random tips. There's no cohesive sort of framework for how do you understand this? What are you trying to do? Uh, how do you build it step by step? And so I wanted to write a guide that was a very step by step building block sort of approach where each step you would understand why you were learning what you were learning. Um, and so that was sort of the idea behind that first one. And then with Level Up Your Social Life, um, I realized that, you know, with, with anything, it's hard to learn a skill just by reading it in a book. It's much easier if you have like activities and and ways to practice it. And so with Level Up Your Social Life, I wanted to give people a set of activities that they could engage in that would help them practice these things and learn these skills. And because, you know, I'm a nerd, I thought, what better way to do that? And to use sort of video games as a metaphor. And so that one, it uses video games as a metaphor for teaching a social skill. And then it gives people quests kind of like in a video game where, you know, there's an activity that they can do to sort of apply what they're learning. Is it too reductive to say that many gamers lack social skills? Is there a link between social skill, lack of social skills and people who are gamers? I I I'm sure that there is. And and I think that it's because if you, I mean, you know, well, just speak from my own experience. I think that when I was really struggling socially, I would gravitate to a lot of games because the parameters of a game are defined. Like in, in, if you go into a social interaction, there's so many variables, there's so many things to keep track of. It can feel almost impossible to know what you're doing, but in a game, it's just programming. And so you can, you can gain, you can feel the sense of mastery. You can know exactly what you're supposed to do. And that can be, you know, comforting for somebody. And if you engage socially online, if you, you know, join a game and you're talking with people in the chat or something, it can be, 
it can be an easier way of engaging socially because again, there's fewer parameters. You don't have to see the person. You don't have to respond to their body language. You you can talk about what's happening in the game instead of having to find something else to talk about. And so it's a little bit of uh, kind of a way of doing social interaction that has some training wheels attached to it. So it makes sense why somebody might gravitate towards that. Um, and I think that those relate, you know, like social interactions that can happen online or through games, those can be real and fulfilling. And, you know, games can be very fun and fulfilling also. I, I just, you know, do think that sometimes people never gravitate beyond that um, because it's it's frightening to kind of move out of that comfort zone. To illustrate the importance of social connection, I'm not sure if you remember this particular reference, but I saw it in one of the talks that you gave online. It's uh, You referred to a meta-study covering 300,000 people and the relationship between greater social connection and death. Do you remember the that particular study? I do remember the study. I, I don't want to cite uh, the numbers exactly because uh, I don't want to misquote them, um, but I will encourage people to watch you know, my, my TEDx talk, because the numbers are all in there. But the core idea um, is that greater social connection was was strongly connected uh, to a, a decreased risk of mortality, far, far more than, um, or, or I, I think equivalent to the effect of, of, of quitting smoking um, and more than the effect of exercise or obesity. And so even these things that we know have a big effect on, on your lifespan, you know, such as, you know, exercise or smoking, uh, like social connection has just as much, if not more, of an effect on uh, how long you're going to live, um, and I would argue how well you're going to live, even though that wasn't included in the study, because I think that somebody who is, you know, like lonely, I I don't know that it's it's easy to have a fully fulfilling life unless you have people to spend it with, and so I think that this is important both so that we can live well, or sorry, that we can live a long time, and so that we can live well. Well, you referred to the TED Talk there. As I said, I'll pop a link to that in the show notes for this episode and indeed your books too. You're very successful now. I'm just curious. I I always want to ask people who have have, uh, achieved a degree of success in their lives, do they ever suffer from or do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? And and how do you cope with any disappointments or failures in your life? Yeah. So I I think that just about everybody struggles with imposter syndrome. because I think that it, it, I think that when we see other people, um, you know, writing books or standing on a stage or, you know, running a podcast or whatever else they're doing, all we see is the output. We don't see all of the rough drafts. We don't see all of the effort they put into it. They don't, we don't see all of the mistakes they made along the way. And so, but we see all of that stuff with ourselves. And so we compare their like final product to our, process our rough drafts and we think oh no like i you know i clearly don't don't stack up to those other people um but they they had their own rough drafts they had their own mistakes they had all that stuff too you just don't don't see it and so i think what i try to remind myself is that um if, if it was hard for me it must have been hard for other people um maybe in different ways but nobody's perfect at anything and i think i also try to remind myself that it it doesn't matter if i'm an imposter or not if what I'm offering is going to help people, um, like fundamentally, it's not about me. It's about our, our, our is my book, is my speaking, is my whatever, is it going to have the ability to, to help somebody? And if I can say, I, I trust the ideas that I'm sharing, then then I, I, I need to get them out there. And it, it doesn't matter if I'm anxious about it. I think that there was, there was a second part of your question. Can you, I got 
caught up in my answer. Can you say the second part of your question also? I was just interested to find out how you negotiate disappointments and and failures. Given that you have achieved a, a great degree of success to date, what is your strategy for getting getting through disappointments and failures in your life now? Yeah, I, I think that the, honestly, the answer that I would give is, um, is a quote from uh, the spiritual writer Henry Nowlin. Um, and, and he, he at one point wrote like, 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 I think who we are is not what we have conquered. And I think what I, what I understand that to mean is that our, our identity and our value are not the same thing as our accomplishments. Um, and the fact is like when I'm, you know, on my deathbed one day, I don't think that I'm going to have people around me being like, Daniel, your TED talk was so good. That was Daniel. I loved your book. It was amazing. Like, you know, I'm going to have like my friends and my family and the people that I've, I've just had everyday experiences of love and connection with. I think that that ultimately is where the biggest meaning and value of life is. And the fact is those people, you know, if I never write another book, those people will still love me and accept me and want to be with me. And so I think that my, you know, I, I like writing books. I like accomplishing things. I like conquering and Henry Nowen's language. Um, but that's not who I am. And when I get discouraged about that, I try to remind myself, um, you know, my my identity is not the same as my achievements. Well, that's a lovely note upon which to end our chat today. Daniel Wender, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Really enjoyed our chat. For sure. I appreciate being here. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Habit Podcast. A reminder, we are on Instagram and on YouTube if you want to check out the videos of these episodes. And if you're enjoying at all listening to the podcast, please like, subscribe, share and leave the podcast a positive rating. It does help us out. Until next time, stay happy. Mm-hmm.